Hello, and welcome to Top Class, the OECD's education podcast. My name is Henry, and I work in the OECD's Directorate for Education and Skills. So the pandemic rages on. As I speak, we're in the middle of a second wave in Europe and elsewhere in the world, and countries everywhere are still struggling to contain the spread of the virus. It's a difficult time for everyone. Every day, new articles appear about case numbers, death rates, where the virus came from, what it's going to do next, and of course, the long-awaited vaccine. And the sheer amount of news is a lot to process, and some are calling it an infodemic to go along with the pandemic. But in this tidal wave of news, how do we know what's trustworthy and what isn't? And perhaps more importantly, how can we help young people make that distinction? That's what we're going to be talking about today. How do we help young people navigate the news in a world as complex as ours? And that's sometimes referred to as media literacy. So to discuss this, I'm very pleased to be joined by Juliana von Reppert Bismarck, founder and CEO of Lie Detectors, which is a news literacy project that aims to turn school children in Europe aged 10 to 15 into powerful lie detectors and critical thinkers. I'm also joined by Amy Mitchell, Director of Journalism Research at the Pew Research Center in the United States. And finally, Francesco Avisati, Senior Survey and Methodology Specialist in the OECD Directorate for Education and Skills. Thank you to all of you for joining. So let's dive in. Um, Juliana, the term fake news is thrown around a lot lately, but just so we're clear before we get into the conversation, could you tell us what the term actually means and what fake fake news would look like? Yeah, thanks a lot. And thanks a lot for bringing us all together um, to talk about this important topic. So I think most of the people on this panel will agree that we don't really like the term fake news. I mean, it can mean so many different things to so many different people. Um, but if we're talking about what's bothering the kids, and that's our focus group, um, they have to um, they have to grapple with a lot of questions. You've got to imagine that they come up um, these days when they're meeting with our journalists online and they ask questions such as, is it true that the coronavirus was made on purpose? Or... Is Putin really putting lions out into the streets of Moscow to enforce the lockdown? Um, or my aunt says Bill Gates is trying to poison all of us. Is that true? So, you know, I would call that disinformation. Um, and increasingly, I would also um, start saying that the kids are getting further and further into conspiracy theories. They have more contact with conspiracy theories. Um, and all of this is not even necessarily politically slanted in any obvious way. But these are the kind of manipulative posts that are undermining trust in fact, trust in science, um, and therefore undermining the ability for citizens to make informed decisions and with that undermining the democratic process. And despite this very real moment of crisis in education, we're seeing that there's a real interest in getting to the bottom of this. Um, how far would you say the danger goes? I mean, you mentioned trust being, being undermined, but you know, what's the real risk here? Well, that's interesting. You know, in our in the pre-corona days, um, we tried to make the comparison between different countries. There's no real country difference. You know, disinformation does not know borders or boundaries, does not actually respect 
socioeconomic differences necessarily. Now with children learning from home, a lot of the time, there is a difference in, uh, in their access and their, in their digital connectedness. One of the very important things that we found um, in the data that we've collected is this digital gap that exists. And by that, I mean, the kids are not reading this stuff and watching this stuff on Facebook or on Twitter. No, they are on Twitch. They're on TikTok. It's very visual. And they're alone. They are in, on platforms that are not moderated. Quite often, they're on platforms that are encrypted. Um, and it is for that reason that it's really important that they should have the tools that are available to be resilient and to navigate carefully when they're on, the one, on their own. The one thing that's very interesting and encouraging is that we're finding an incredibly high level of interest on the part of the children um, and, you know, teenagers and on the part of the teachers as well. They're ready to learn. And the pandemic, if anything, has made them care about disinformation and want to be media literate to a very, very high degree. Yeah, you mentioned media literacy there, you know, that term that we use to kind of denote how good children, uh, students are uh, understanding what they're seeing online and, and dealing with that. Francesco, I, I want to go to you. Do we have any data on what the level of media literacy is across countries and, and maybe how it differs between countries? Yeah, at the OECD, we don't really measure media literacy as a distinct subject. We, we do have, however, some measures which do relate to this, in particular, the measure of reading literacy for 15-year-olds and the measures of literacy in the survey of adult skills. They do have components of media literacy embedded in them. Uh, we don't have the multimedia aspect, the visual aspect, the audio aspect that, that, that is perhaps even increasing, and we might turn to this in the future. But at the moment, we're, we're looking and we're placing a particular emphasis on the ability of students, for instance, in PISA, to evaluate and reflect on text. So when we read news, either by searching actively for it or accessing it in our news feeds, we must assess the quality and credibility of the information continuously. We must detect the potential biases by looking also beyond the text, by looking, for example, at the source of the information, whether the author is competent, well-informed, benevolent, and we must rely on statements that are made in the, test, in the text, but also on the implicit cues, maybe the form of the text, what we know about the source, or information that comes from a second text. In fact, this multi-source literacy, multi, multiple text contrasting and comparing is actually a key to this um, component here. We navigate online, we compare, we contrast across multiple texts, and then we find conflicts, uh, the texts that contradict each other, we must detect them and we must find ways to deal with it. So in our last assessments of 15-year-olds, we had a strong emphasis on these kind of processes. And we found that, for example, only about one in 10 students was able to master complex reading tasks, such as distinguishing whether an author is stating a fact or giving his opinion when the author does not explicitly tell and when the student does not have prior knowledge about the topic. So when he has to rely on this implicit uh, accused, for example. And on the other hand, we have one in four students who had difficulty with very basic aspects of reading still, such as connecting pieces of information across different sources. And we have students with wide differences across countries, of course, and within countries, even larger ones. The students in Singapore, Estonia, Canada, and Finland, for example, were among the highest performing students. Uh, students in developing countries were among the lowest. Now, there's a second aspect, actually, that connects to this. Uh, we also collected a lot of information using questions about how aware students are of the right strategies to assess the credibility of sources, for example. So it's not just whether they can do it in, a, in an example, but uh, do they know actually, are they told explicitly and do they 
can they explain what are the right strategies when it comes to, uh, for instance, detecting? Uh, the example that we used was detecting uh, a scam email. Um, the data are already published, but we are going to dive into it much deeper in a report that's coming out only next year, which is called 21st Century Readers. So look, watch out for it. But in that particular question, for example, we had students in the UK, Japan, in Germany, in the Netherlands, um, and in some of the high performing countries also like Finland and Singapore, which were much more aware of, uh, of the right strategies to deal with uh, misinformation or disinformation. Um, they rated the strategies that we proposed to them in the same way as experts um, would have rated them. Uh, students, in, on the other hand, in Indonesia, in Thailand, in the Philippines, in Albania, in, in those corners of the world, they really had the least awareness of the strategies to assess trustworthiness. You um, mentioned something interesting that uh, in that quite striking statistic, the one in 10, it was one in 10. Can you say it again? One in 10 students couldn't... Yeah, one in 10 students is not able to distinguish whether an author is stating a fact or is giving his opinion when it's not immediately obvious because the author tells and when the student does not have prior knowledge about the topic. Yeah, it's that prior knowledge aspect that, that struck me because I, I think that describes so often the situation of students reading news online or reading something online. I mean, oftentimes they very much don't have prior knowledge about what they're reading and the implicit cues from the text are all they have to go on. So that that one in 10 is is quite, quite shocking. Um, I want to move on to Amy. Amy's been very patiently waiting for, for a chance to, to contribute here. Um, Juliana earlier mentioned Twitch uh, and a few other platforms where students and young people are engaging and maybe where they get their news from. But I want to ask you, because you've done extensive research on how people engage with news in general. I want to ask you from your data and research, where do young people get their news from nowadays? Um, and does the source of news have an impact on things like beliefs? Yeah, well, well, thanks. Um, and young Americans, if and you know, we are looking, we're generally studying young adults and you know, adults generally. So in our cohort, it would be 18 to 29 year olds. Um, they certainly tend to rely more heavily on social media as a pathway to news, less so on any of the say different television um, genres for news or you know, certainly print. They also often name, and when we ask people people to write in their main source for news, they're often, and, and we explicitly say, we mean a specific news outlet, you know, or organization, they will write in a social media site as their main source, um, far more often than do older uh, adults. So there's definitely a predilection to turn to social media. They're also more likely to say their friends and family um, are major sources of news for them. The, you know, one of the areas that we've been doing a lot of research over this past year is, is in where Americans are turning for news and how those news habits connect to differences in their views about what's going on around current events. We've seen quite substantial differences, both depending on the pathway people are choosing. So, for example, social media um, compared with other pathways, as well as in the individual sources people are going to. So if we take social media first, um, uh, roughly two in 10 U.S. adults say that they primarily turn to social media for um, uh, political and election news. 
if we look at that group across sort of a range of a year's worth of data we've been collecting, we see a number of things emerge. First is that they tend to pay less attention to news generally. And we saw this both around the election uh, and around um, the coronavirus. So for example, as of mid-June, only 8% said they were following election news very closely. That compares with 37% at the high end who said they mainly rely on cable for this type of news. Similarly, 23% only said they were, said they were following the coronavirus news very closely compared with about twice as many uh, who said that when it came to uh, those who turned to cable. They also tend to be less knowledgeable. We've had a whole range of different knowledge questions we've asked over the course of this year. And their sort of index of sort of high versus low knowledge, they tend to be at the bottom um, with only those who tend to turn most to local television in the same sort of general uh, space uh, around knowledge. They also express less certainty. So they say they're less certain um, in their knowledge. They tend to express less concern about made up news and misinformation, but at the same time are more likely to have heard about certain um, areas of misinformation. So, for example, around the coronavirus, they were more likely to have heard of certain unproven treatments um, such as, you know, vitamin C. And they were also more likely to believe the pandemic was planned by powerful people, which is also a um, unsubstantiated claim that had been um, circling uh, around in, in these spaces. If I may, I would love to add something to that. I was really um, struck by what Amy said about um, the level of, you know, visual platforms um, that um, young people go to for their information. And that chimes very much with what we find with the 10 to 15 year olds that we work with over here in Europe. Um, and something that's very significant about this visual um, social media activity is not only that it leaves young people completely alone because there are no fact checkers on most of these um, on most of these platforms, um, but it also works as a break and as an inhibitor for teachers to address this with young people, perhaps also parents, we don't have data on that, but certainly teachers tell us that while 80% of them tell us that, yes, they understand that critical use of the online universe, critical digital literacy or multi-source literacy, as Francesco just called it, is critically important, only 40% of them, actually less than half of them, have ever mentioned it in a classroom. Um, and that is because they feel under-resourced. They don't know how to address it. They don't understand the platforms that the young people are on. And so therefore, from our, um, from our work and our insights, what's incredibly important is actually to make the teachers feel empowered. They do not need to be on TikTok or Twitch or Discord or Snapchat to be able to talk about this. But this is something that they can actually address in a way that is meaningful, that is relevant to the children, that is relevant to their own examples from their own um, subject areas um, that is playful, that does not actually need to be political in nature. We often find ourselves having to relate to the pet, to the teachers that, no, we were not going to talk about political issues. We're not going to talk about Trump versus whoever it might be. We're not going to talk about um, religious tolerance or, or immigration policy, which are very hot issues that divide classrooms here in Europe. Um, but that, in fact, there are easy and non 
confrontational and, and politically neutral ways in addressing this issue that allow young people to simply flex this critical muscle, this ability to le look left and right before actually seizing something as a fact. And that's really important um, that we have found that enabling and empowering the teachers is one of the most, the most fundamental things that is still lacking. And it's for that reason that we really advocate for um, all teacher training curricula to integrate this critical media literacy into these curricula so that every teacher, regardless of what the subject area, whether it be politics, ethics, biology, maths, um, or just simple primary school teaching, can talk about the verification of a fact, um, a source check, a fact check with a child. Yeah, that's such a good point about um, about how the things that young people will encounter online are all often so divisive and partisan. And it's it's great to hear that there's a way to educate about that without having to, you know, get into those very, very tricky debates. Something that uh, Amy was saying earlier, I mean, it was quite striking about the different beliefs that Amy was outlining. I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into that data, though, and ask you, Amy, if you could possibly say a bit more about the pandemic itself as a case study and maybe a bit more about what patterns we saw emerging about how people engage with news about the crisis and whether or not there may be any difference in that compared to before the pandemic began. Sure. And, and um, you know, just to just to circle back on that last thought, too, I would also add that um, it, it, it's also a when we talk about sort of the time to be working with people and at that young age um, to make distinctions between things that are true and things that are not true or factual and not factual. One of the challenges in this misinformation space today is that people tend to put all kinds of things in the made up news bucket. When we ask people to write sort of in an open end, people who said they came across made up news, okay, give us an example. It, it runs the gamut from everything, things that are, you know, sort of hard and true fact to things that are truly made up. So, you know, there's a, we're also at a point where there's this acceptance or rejection of reality or creation of an alternative reality as people have talked about. When it comes to uh, the coronavirus and we look at it, you know, we've been now studying this, you know, from March through the current time and the attention to this virus has remained remarkably high in the U.S. Uh, so you were at, you know, back in March, you had about half of U.S. adults who said they were following it very closely. That did tend to fall off a little bit um, in September. Uh, where you were down to about 35% following it very closely, but that's still a very high portion of adults. And if you look at following it closely at all, um, you know, you're, you're, you know, three quarters and higher uh, in terms of attention. There is some difference by party there with Democrats following it more closely than Republicans. There are also differences by race and by age. So certainly older adults tended to be, to be following the news more closely over this time period than younger adults. Um, Black Americans following it um, more closely than white Americans. And we ask about a range of different aspects of the outbreak. So things such as access to testing and hospitals, uh, the death counts and, and case rates, the economic impact. Black Americans report paying more attention to all of those different areas of the outbreak than do white Americans. 
There are also differences in attention when it comes to the sourcing. And again, this is sort of if you look at some of these more non-traditional sources, such as relying on Donald Trump in the White House as a major source of news, um, compared with relying on public health officials like the CDC or state officials, there are real differences in people's assessment of uh, how the outbreak has gone in the U.S. So if we ask a question like, how well the U.S. has controlled the coronavirus outbreak. Overall, majority of Americans say the country's not controlled it as much as it could have. Um, but very big differences um, based on party, but also based on media diet. And again, you see those Republicans who named major sources as those with right-leaning audiences much more likely to say it's been as controlled as much as possible, 93% who report that figure. So differences, you know, in a lot of different parts of the, of the um, population, but also differences based on media diet. Um, if I could bring it back down to the students, you know, and the young people who are engaging with this stuff online, um, Juliana said something earlier about uh, about empowering teachers to really be able to help young people na navigate these waters. Uh, since we have Francesco on, who you know works directly on issues to do with education policy, Francesco, I wanted to ask you what role you see. Uh, education systems playing in improving media literacy for young people and and how can schools and ministries address this yeah i uh, i think first uh, the first thing to say here is that i mean there's always been a role for education obviously to improve literacy uh, in any domain i think what what we're seeing here is um is a bit of a, a change in recent times and Perhaps we can, we can we can actually use the the pandemic as a as a metaphor here. I mean, everybody is familiar with the SIR uh, model these days, where the way uh, the damage that the pandemic may make is dependent on the number of susceptible people and on the reproduction rate. Now, what we've seen, I think, recently is that the reproduction rate with an infodemic, so in a in this metaphorical pandemic where uh, misinformation may spread, has just increased uh, a lot because of the social media use and the, the new media that uh, young people engage with. So we need, we need to to counter this increase in the reproduction rate or the fact that everyone can become a super spreader of misinformation or disinformation very easily today. Um, and, and we can do it in two ways. We can either reverse the technological change, which is probably not what education can do, and it's more like a lockdown in a in a in a, in a sense. But we we can also increase the number of people who have antibodies, uh, and that's what education really does. It's it it may it removes people from the super spreaders by making people think before they share. Um, information more widely and perhaps even uh, respond to to the disinformation more actively so how how can education how can teachers also work with this and how can education ministries address this uh, the first implication i see is maybe um obvious one but it's also that it's clear that in this new environment it's not just about educating the elite it's not just about also average levels of literacy but it really requires a commitment to education for all to ensure that all children are equipped with the minimum skills with the antibodies in my metaphor um, to uh, to ensure that they, they, they don't fall victim to um, disinformation and misinformation. If everyone can turn into a super spreader, we can really, we must really build our defenses around that fact. 
in second, in terms of more pedagogical uh, interventions, what we know is that one one area which is very interesting is the awareness of metacognitive regulation strategies is a strong factor and research has shown that explicit instruction of reading strategies improves text understanding and information use. So for example, teachers can teach when it is appropriate to just scan a passage given the goal that they have and when the task requires more sustained and complete reading of the passage, they can teach also strategies to identify potential bias in text What's important is that this kind of strategies and not just the content uh, aspects or the, the technical aspects of reading, but really the, 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 the regulation that you, you do on, your, on how you engage with the text uh, can be explicitly taught and must be the subject of explicit effort in teaching. Uh, the final uh, thought is that it's really not just uh, the it's not it's not the responsibility of a new subject of media studies it's not the responsibility of a particular teacher but it really is something that probably is more effective if it is taught and reinforced in a variety of contexts and by all teachers so the science teacher may talk about scientific information the history teacher may use examples from historical sources the language teacher may sample an online article including perhaps also the comment section not just the 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 authoritative part from the website and in fact the more this knowledge of um, how to engage with the text how to critically evaluate the um, credibility of a text the trustworthiness is situated in a variety of meaningful contexts and the more likely the student is then to use it also in non-school contexts like your metaphor, I like the infodemic versus pandemic metaphor. I think that's that's really, really well put. Um, as a final thought, because I'm looking at the time and we're running a bit short, uh, we're talking about you know what education systems can do. I want to maybe ask Juliana about this since this is really her wheelhouse. Do you have any tips for us, for listeners, for basically everybody on how we can help young people combat misinformation during this pandemic? Yes, um, I would say take some time to really get to the point where you're getting them to understand that this is something that is relevant to them and that they care about. Um, and that is that starts by asking them questions. Take them seriously. Ask them about what is happening in their online universe and they will tell you. Um, and then based on that, start answering their questions. You know, they tell us what they care about. They tell us every day. They tell us they care about the chain letters, the threatening chain letters that they're receiving, the conspiracy theories that are being posted around. They want to know why disinformation is out there. Um, you know, and when you're addressing this, you know, come with exercises, come with games that they care about. You know, their interest is there. Try and capture it, make it playful, make it age relevant, help them flex their critical thinking muscle. You know, this is not rocket science. They just have to know that it's relevant to them, that it's possible, and, um, you know, that they actually have the tools at their disposal, for, disposal to do something about it. You know, there are simple things that they can check, check other sources, like Francesca said, check the date, give them a a checklist of simple tools. You know, somebody at some point dared to say that children aged 15 should come out of school with a core set of basic literacy to read, to write, and to count very fundamentally. And what we say is that it's time for all of us to realize that there is another core literacy needed these days and to add to these three literacies a fourth one, that is to read, to write, to count, and to check a fact. 
Um, and that's really fundamental and something that needs to be taken up in policymaking. We advocate for um, the PISA rankings to um, have digital literacy as one of the gauges for the, the PISA rankings. You know, we're not going to get rid of disinformation. We've all known it's been there for a long time. We all used to walk to the news agents and see that there was the tabloid somewhere with the alien landings or whatever. And, you know, then there was the broadsheet with the serious news and we could tell the difference very simply. What we need to make sure is that everybody is equipped with a critical eye that tells the difference. And yes, sometimes reads the story about the alien landings, but knows that that is something very different from serious political um, information that will help them make democratic decisions. I uh, couldn't agree more. That's a, a wonderful thought to finish on. And while I'm listening to all of you, I'm realizing the small irony in talking about media literacy uh, using a media outlet. So I hope our listeners will uh, will trust what we're saying, that, that it's researched and that it's a trustworthy source. But with that, um, I think we've run out of time. So uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us for this really quite fascinating conversation. Thanks yep. so much, Henry. That was lovely. And thanks, everyone. Really fascinating to hear what you guys are doing, Francesco and Amy. Completely agree. Thank you for pulling this together, Henry. And I'm going to look forward to um, keeping up with the work you all are doing. Yes, thank you. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you'd like to find out more about COVID-19's impact on education, you can get updates from the Education Directorate on our Twitter page at OECD EduSkills. And if you'd like to know more about OECD's work on COVID-19 in general, you can visit the OECD's dedicated webpage, which is oecd.org forward slash coronavirus. Thanks again, everybody. And until next time.